Our text for today comes from Revelation chapter 20 as we continue our study in the book of Revelation. Hear now God's holy word. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, thank you for the way that you have ordered history, and thank you for revealing these things to us through your word and guiding us into truth by your spirit. I pray that that would be the case today, that as we study and as we hear, and as we contemplate these things, your spirit would deliver us from error, that you would give us clarity of thought. Give me clarity of speech, I pray. Fill us all with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Northern Europe in the early Middle Ages was a dark and very pagan place. The Germanic and the Scandinavian peoples who lived there held fast to this brutal polytheistic religion. Their world was populated with ghosts and spirits, elves and trolls. Their world was governed by Odin, the god, his wife Frigg, and their son Thor. Their Thor was not anything like the Thor of the comic books. He wasn't anywhere near as charismatic as Chris Hemsworth. Uh, their god of thunder demanded sacrifice, and, and the, the actual Thor that they worshipped even demanded child sacrifice. In Bavaria, what is modern-day Germany, certain sacrificial rituals took place at an oak tree they called the Oak of Donar, or the Oak of Thunder, and it's there that they would worship Thor, and they would practice sacrifice, even child sacrifice, at this, at this oak, because they believed that Thor's presence and his blessing were present in this tree. In the early 8th century, an Anglo-Saxon Christian missionary named Boniface traveled from England to Bavaria to bring the gospel to the pagan Germanic people. And when he got there, he was horrified by the human sacrifices. So on a winter day in the year 722, when he knew that just such a ritual was going to take place at the Oak of Thunder, at the Oak of Donar, Boniface came to the assembly with the gospel and an axe. Uh, the Thor worshipers initially scoffed because they believed it was impossible for this tree to be cut down. It is, after all, Thor's tree. Who's going to cut down Thor's tree? You can't do it. And they boasted that the god of Boniface could not even destroy the tree of Thor. A scribe named Willibald traveled with Boniface on his missionary travels, and Willibald wrote Boniface's life story. And, and here's how Willibald described what happened next. Taking his courage in his hands, for a great crowd of pagans stood by watching and bitterly cursing in their hearts the enemy of the gods, he cut the first notch. But when he had made a superficial cut, suddenly the oak's vast bulk, shaken by a mighty blast of wind from above, crashed to the ground, shivering its topmost branches into fragments in its fall, as if by the express will of God, for the brethren present had done nothing to cause it, the oak burst asunder into four parts, each part having a trunk of equal length, 
At the sight of this extraordinary spectacle, the heathens who had been cursing ceased to revile and began, on the contrary, to believe and bless the Lord. The Thor worshipers felt betrayed by their god, Thor, because he didn't strike Boniface with lightning. Uh, He let his tree get chopped down with no recourse. So they converted to the Christian faith on the spot, finding that there is only one true god of thunder, the triune god of creation. After this, Boniface directed that the lumber from the oak tree be used in the building of a Christian church. Uh, The story points to the fact that when Christian missionaries went out to these pagan lands, they did not go to make peace with the witches and the wizards and the soothsayers and the shamans. They didn't turn a blind eye to the child sacrifice or to the other atrocities. They didn't give lip service to the disgusting, bloodthirsty gods of the pagans. They came with axe in hand to chop down the sacred oaks, to tear down the altars, to level the high places, and to turn them into Christian sanctuaries. They did this because for them, the gospel brought with it a certain expectation of the victory of the kingdom of Christ. The church advanced from the day of Pentecost forward throughout the centuries with the attitude of hope and the confidence of the triumph of Christ over all things, that he shall reign over all kingdoms and that he is king of kings, he is Lord of lords, and he is God of gods. The trust that Jesus has defeated Satan is what has propelled the church throughout the ages and against many enemies and many tyrants and many oppressors, and she has outlasted them all. She has outlived all of them. Somewhere along the way, though, in the last 150 years or so, the church has lost her grip on that truth. She has bought the narrative that she's going to ultimately lose in time, in history, on earth, that we really don't have any authority or dominion over seen and unseen powers, but we are at their mercy. They can do with us whatever they want, that we're under their authority. In the end, Christ doesn't have the victory over the nations. Not all the kingdoms bow their knee to Jesus. And truly, effectively, practically, Satan wins in time and in history. Now we have this idea that there is a spiritual victory of Christ in the end, uh, that there's a spiritual fulfillment to the promises of his kingdom, but that there's no actual, literal, uh, concrete fulfillment to these to these promises. And so the idea is, the popular idea is that we need another cataclysmic redemptive event to get us to even that spiritual fulfillment. When the few remaining Christians in the world get sucked out of history while the judgments are poured out on the earth, the, this theology of defeat, this eschatology of loss, this, this eschatology of escape has been extremely detrimental to the advance of the gospel in the world. It's resulted in malaise. It's resulted in this failure to live generationally. The gospel doesn't impact the world. It doesn't change the world. We see the world as one kingdom and we have our spiritual kingdom and there's nothing we can do about their laws or their society or their life. We have no influence over it. And why? Because it's all going to be destroyed anyway. Where is the Boniface of this age? Who will go claiming the victory of Christ over all ignorance and all error with the trust that Satan has been bound? Who will lay an axe 
fearlessly to the root of all the sacred oaks with the trust that Jesus has already won the victory over them? Will we have an eschatology of victory or an eschatology of defeat? I, I throw the word eschatology around every once in a while. I need to stop and define it. Eschatology is a view of the future, the view of the end. What is our view of the end? Is it that the church reigns with Christ in history or that we're defeated and we get sucked out of history and then, and then there's only a spiritual dimension to our victory? And that's the critical question. And now we come to Revelation 20, which describes the binding of Satan, which describes the reign of Christ with his saints for a thousand years. This short section has become the center of all the popular discussions of eschatology or, or end times. Now, before I go into this, I want to say I don't believe it's helpful that all of our discussions around uh, our view of the future end up coming down to how we deal with these few verses. I actually think that the question is much bigger than these few verses, but um, th that's just those those are the cards we're dealt. That these are the verses that that we're we're dealing with, and so what we have is uh, various views that that go by the name of of millennial. Are you post-millennial? Are you pre-millennial? Are you amillennial? And that comes from the fact that this passage talks about a thousand years. A thousand years is a millennium, and it's the timing of this stretch of history. It's the timing of this space, the events that come before it, and the events that come after it that has been used as the label for these various positions. And everybody gets divided up into pre-millennial or amillennial millennial or post-millennial camps. I have to slow down when I say millennial or it comes out millennial. So I, forgive me if I slur it. I'm going to slow down. The premillennial position is that the future return of Christ comes before he binds Satan for a thousand years, before he reigns with his saints on earth. That's the pre-millennial. Pre, uh, pre That's the, that he comes before. And a part of this view is they also put the judgments and the tribulations of Revelation that we've been reading about, of Matthew 24, of Luke 21, all of these, all of these things. They put all of this uh, cataclysmic, redemptive uh, uh, story and timeline, they put it all in our future, and they set it not just on on Israel and Jerusalem, but they, they stretch it out to the entire world, that the entire world experiences this. It's all on a global scale. In this view, the future is not hopeful. The future is not uh, a welcoming, but it's very daunting and terrifying. It's the view that I grew up with for many years, and I thought, I am never going to see adulthood. I'm never going to finish college. I'm never going to get married, because this all is, is falling apart and quickly. The amillennial position is that there is no earthly reign of Christ with his saints, that the reign of Christ is only a heavenly reign or a spiritual reign, has little impact on earth. History kind of shambles along without a trajectory toward victory until God calls it off and we have a final judgment. The post-millennial position what are we talking about when we say post or after the millennium? That, that is the position that the future return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, all the remaining unfulfilled prophecies happen after 
this thousand years of reign. After the period of the earthly success of the gospel and Christ ruling the nations through his people, through the church. And, and built into this post-millennial view is this perspective that when John says repeatedly in Revelation that all these things must shortly take place, we take that literally and say, yeah, from John's perspective, all these things must shortly take place. That when Jesus says, uh, this generation will not pass away until all these things happen, uh, that the generation that called for the crucifixion of Jesus is the generation on which his wrath is poured out. That generation sees the folding up of the old covenant creation and the initiation of the new heavens and the new earth of the new covenant. And of course, it's no secret, that last reading is the one that I believe is the most consistent with the scriptures, the one that I can best defend, and the one that has guided our study so far through Revelation. And I've worked to demonstrate that everything that we've read thus far has had fulfillment and application in the first century. Everything up to and including the first part of chapter 20, everything has happened. And we don't start inserting large expanses of time until the text does. Until the text starts stretching out the timeline, we don't stretch out the timeline. And now it, it, it does, because now we do have this expanse of time. Now we can start getting into the future beyond uh, 70 AD. Otherwise, if if this is all future, then what relevance would the book of Revelation have for the first century church? How would they read it? How would they understand it if they were supposed to see uh, helicopters and Russia and China and, and Vladimir Putin or Gorbachev or, or you know intercontinental ballistic missiles and things? How would they even understand it? How would they read it? How would it be useful for them in any way if it were all stretched out into the future? So So everything up to and including the first, first part of chapter 20, from John's perspective, everything is shortly to take place. And now we have things described for a couple of chapters in 20 and 21, things that are going to stretch out and take longer expanses of time. We know that because the text tells us that it is going to stretch out and it's going to take longer time until we get to the last chapter and we get to chapter 22 and then we get all these statements again. These are things which must shortly take place. Behold, I'm coming quickly. The time is at hand. I am coming quickly. Surely I'm coming quickly. We get back to the last chapter and he says, don't forget, these other things that I've told you about are on the horizon. The bulk of these events are shortly to take place from John's perspective. Um, so, as I said, though, I still don't believe it's helpful to identify our entire view of the future based off of our interpretation of these six verses in chapter 20. The real question that I want to answer, and the important question is, do you have an eschatology of hope or do you have an eschatology of despair? Do you have an eschatology of victory or one of defeat? Are you optimistic when it comes to the church completing her mission in time, in the world, in history, or do you think she fails? Does Jesus win or does Satan win in time, in history? That's the real question. And, and where you wrap that around your view of these six verses really is secondary or tertiary. The big question for me is, is does Jesus win or not? 
And if you ask me, sure, yeah, I'm post-millennial, but I want to emphasize that the reason I'm post-millennial is I believe that this is the most consistent view with the, with the theology of Christ's victory in history. Now, to be precise, and I want to, want to be precise on this point, the, the theology of victory is this, that the Lord Jesus established his kingdom at his coming, and by his death and resurrection, and by his ascension to his throne in heaven, he presently rules over all creation until his enemies are made his footstool. We're not waiting for the reign of Christ. He presently rules. The kingdom has been established. And he accomplishes this rule through his church. He conquers the nations by the gospel. He extends the fruits of his reign throughout the world through his church. We also see in this perspective that Jesus is the second Adam. He successfully is fulfilling the dominion mandate that God gave the first Adam. And through the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, as the prophets say. And then when he is satisfied, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. The dead in Christ will rise. We'll all receive glorified bodies fit for eternity. And then we will enjoy eternal life in and on an earth that is now completely conformed to heaven's rule. Earth will, uh, will be in the image of heaven. Earth is our home. It is our eternal home. And it will be conformed to heaven's, heaven's agenda. That is the theology of victory that I've been working to support throughout this whole study. What Revelation 20 gives us is the perspective of what is happening to Satan while all of this is going on. The dragon has been a major player in Revelation. He's been stirring up the nations. He's been deceiving them. He's been bringing the nations into conflict with the lamb and with his armies. And now that the kingdom is established... How is Satan bound? How is Satan limited? And what does he do as the gospel advances and Christ takes dominion? Well, we're only going to make it through a bite-sized portion of this chapter today because I want to be thorough and because I couldn't squeeze everything I wanted to say about this in uh, the time that I have this morning. So we're going to continue this next week. So we're just going to walk through the first few verses. And as we do, remember where we are in the timeline of Revelation, in the timeline of history, what has happened so far, all the warnings, all the preliminary judgments against the harlot city Jerusalem have fallen on deaf ears. Jerusalem and the temple authorities have cast their lot with Caesar. They're, they're in with Herod. They oppose Christ. They're complicit in his crucifixion. So the whole thing is under judgment. Jesus then has made war from heaven with the city, and he's brought the city to nothing. Rejecting the harlot, he, he lifts up his true bride, the church, and then he girds on his sword. He takes up his rod of iron that we sang about in Psalm 2 this morning, and then he rides out to conquer the nations, to make war on the beast, which is Rome, and the false prophet, which is apostate Judaism with the chief priest at the center. And then he wraps up, he closes out his dealings with them, with Rome and Judaism. Rome is never the same after this. Uh, the Julian dynasty is over. And in a couple of more centuries, Rome is going to be a Christian empire with a Christian emperor. Uh, Rome, Rome's cooked. Rome is done. And then Judaism is a dead, Christless religion. Judaism is, is over as well. And that's where we got to 
in chapter 19. Now we open chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. This is not the first time we've seen a mighty angel descending from heaven in Revelation. And each time we've seen this, it made sense to see that angel as the presence of Jesus, the capital A angel, the messenger of the covenant. Let me remind you of where we've seen, by the way, if you have your Bible open, we're going to do a lot of flipping around today. So, you know, lick your thumb if you need to and, and keep it ready because there are a few things I want to show you and I want you to read them for yourself so that you see how I'm putting this together. Who is this angel in 20 who comes down with a key and a great chain? We've already seen mighty angels descending from heaven, like at the beginning of chapter 10, verse 1. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire. He had a book open in his right hand. He set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. Who is clothed in a cloud and rainbow with feet and legs of fire who roars like a lion? And this is like, uh, you know, third grade Sunday school. Who is it? Jesus, right? <laughs> so that's obviously is, is, is who we're talking about. And then over in chapter 18, we have another mighty angel descending from heaven. Chapter 18, verse 1, after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. Who is the messenger of heaven with great authority who illuminates the earth? It's the angel of the Lord who we've seen over and over in the old covenant, the son of man who was in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's the captain of the Lord's army. Every time we see the angel of the Lord appear in the old covenant, it's the second person of the Trinity. It's the pre-incarnate Christ. So once again, this angel comes from heaven with a key to the bottomless pit. Now, again, flip over to chapter 1, if you're following along, 118, if you have any questions and say, well, this could just be an angel. Well, who has the keys to death and Hades? Chapter 18, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 18. This is Jesus speaking. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Who has who holds the keys to the pit? Who holds the keys of Hades? Well, this angel does, this mighty angel, and this is the Lord Jesus. You may remember back in chapter 9, uh, briefly, Satan was given the key to unleash the locust demon horde, that demon army. He was temporarily given the key, but he had to borrow it. He didn't own it. He needed permission. But here in chapter 20, Jesus has the key in his hand and he has a chain in his hand. Those are two powerful images that we're going to see in other places in scripture. Jesus has the key and he has a chain, something to lock and to unlock, something to bind and unbind, unbind and uh, bind and, and loose. If you kept a finger over in chapter one, you know what else he has in his hands? In uh, chapter one, verse 20, Jesus says, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands, which you saw are the seven churches. So he's got a key in his hand. He's got a chain in his hand. 
But I don't think he's put down the stars and the candlesticks. He's got big hands. He can hold a lot of things. He holds the churches in his hand. He holds the pastors in his hand. And with that, he holds the keys and the chain in his hand. See, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says to his church, I give you the keys. In Matthew chapter 18, he says, I give you the power to bind and to loose. So when Jesus comes carrying things, both the items and the authority to use them are given to his church. And so the actions he takes here are the actions he takes with and through and for his bride, the church. Remember when we looked at the marriage of the lamb a few weeks ago, we talked about the totus Christus, the whole Christ. Once Jesus is joined with his bride, he isn't separated from her. He is the head, she is the body. He is the groom, she is the bride. They have a one flesh relationship. So from there on, his work in the world and her work in the world are not separated. You never then have a connection to the head that doesn't include the body. You never have a relationship with the groom that doesn't include the bride. And here we see a unity between his work and our work. Chain, key, star, lampstand, all in his hand. Church and authority, head and body, groom and bride, come down to bind Satan. Verse 2 of chapter 20. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. We get four names for our enemy because at this point he's deceived the four corners of the earth. He, uh, he's, he's involved in all four points of the compass. Back in chapter 12, verse 9, we read, that great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast with him. He is the, he's the enemy who has deceived the whole world, but that's about to come to an end. He's no longer going to get to do that. But we get four, four names for him. What is he called? Just to remind us of who he is and what he does. Well, he's the dragon. Remember the dragon who sought to devour the child. It was the dragon in Revelation who stirred up the fallen angels to fight against heaven. It's the dragon who, who created the persecuting sea beast, who made the sea beast to reflect his image. The dragon is the hideous monster who must be defeated, but he's also the serpent. What do you think of when you think of his role as serpent? Well, immediately you run back to the garden. The serpent was the seducer of the bride. The serpent was the liar who told Eve that God doesn't intend good for you. God wants bad things for you. God is withholding good things from you. He's the liar. He's the seducer. He's also the devil. The devil is the name of the one who met uh, Satan, uh, Jesus in the wilderness. The devil is the tempter. He's the adversary. He's the slanderer. He's the deceiver. And he's also Satan. We get all four names for him. Dragon, serpent, devil, Satan. He's the accuser, Satan. So he's not only a monster that creates mayhem and makes war and destruction. He's also, we don't forget this, he's the serpentine manipulator. He's the liar. He's the devilish tempter full of mischief and he's a satanic fount of accusations. And Jesus comes now with key and chain to shut him up, to stop him, and to put a restraint on his 
activity. John tells us that once he's bound, he's to remain bound for a thousand years. That's an immense rounded off number that's used throughout the Bible for any time we need a great unaccountable vastness, we get the number 1,000. We don't start the stopwatch in AD 70 and then run it out for a 1,000 years. And then at a 1,000 years, we think something is supposed to happen then. Throughout the scriptures, the the number 1,000 is used in this very general, innumerable, vast uh, way. And you can do your own study. You can go to Bible Gateway and you can type in thousand. You can see all the times this comes up. I'm just going to give you a few. In Deuteronomy 7, 9, we read that Yahweh is the God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations. That doesn't mean that he fails to show mercy to the thousand and first generation. It doesn't mean that he his, his mercy's up in the thousand and first generation. It means that he shows mercy to an innumerable expanse of generations. In Psalm 50, God says, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. That doesn't mean that the 1,001st hill has somebody else's cows on it. All the cows and all the hills belong to God. They all belong to him. That's his way. That's his poetic way of saying that all the cows are his. Psalm 68 says that the chariots of God are 20,000 and thousands of thousands. That's not a specific number of chariots. God has an innumerable company of chariots. Psalm 90 says, a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past and like a watch in the night. What is a thousand years to the Lord is the question there. It's a vast, undefined period of time, like it is in Revelation 20. And I keep bringing you back to the very first verse of the book of Revelation, that these things are signified. These things are spoken in the language of symbol. So, um, I don't believe that suddenly we have a precise chronology inserted in the midst of all of this symbolic language. Suddenly we have a, a precise uh, beginning and end to a 1,000 year period of time and uh, uh, that, that, that we follow. Rather, that after the kingdom is established and before the final judgment, which we have, got, we, we have yet to read about, between the establishment of the kingdom and the final judgment, we have a vast, undefined period of time where Satan is bound and the kingdom advances. But if that's the time that we're living in now, because we would agree, yeah, the kingdom has been established, and no, the final judgment hasn't happened yet, so we must be living in this time where Satan is bound. In what way is Satan bound? Well, we find out in the next verse, verse 3. He cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. In Luke chapter 11, after Jesus cast out a demon, he said, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, the goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoils. And then uh, in Matthew's gospel, which is also similar to Mark's gospel, which John read earlier this morning, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? This binding of the strong man for the plundering of his house is what's happening in 
Revelation 20. In, in 1 John 3, 8, John writes, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now notice Satan is not destroyed yet, but his works are being destroyed. Satan is bound. He is humiliated. He is restrained in specific ways. The strong man is tied up so that his house can be plundered by Christ and his property can be carried off without opposition, the way that Boniface plundered Bavaria and how he plundered the worshipers of Thor, the way that he turned a sacred oak into a church. Satan is bound with a chain so that he can't defend or protect his works as the Son of God tears down his strongholds, which means that when Jesus is ready to tear something down, Satan can't preserve it. How much confidence and how much boldness does that give you to know that that if you, in the spirit, in the knowledge of the Lord, oppose the works of Satan, he can't resist you. He has no defenses. We are terrified of the results of what might happen if we actually speak up and oppose the works of Satan. We're, we're worried about defeat. We're worried about what's going to happen to us. But that's all he has. All he has is terror. All he has is psychological operations. All he has is propaganda. But what if you knew that the liar is lying? What if you know that the defenses are just a flimsy facade? How confident would you be knowing that your enemy is essentially unarmed? And that's what we see here. There's a very specific way that the text says that he is bound. He is limited in this capacity that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Satan is presently unable to prevent the message of the gospel from achieving success throughout the nations. He is unable to get all the nations on the same page and to get them unified to the point that they're all pushing in the same direction against the bride. Now, it's not always been this way. Before the coming of Christ, Satan ruled the nations. He was the ruler of the earth and he was the deceiver of the whole earth. How, how do we know this? Well, when Satan deceived Eve, he deceived the world. And when Adam submitted to the beast, rather than taking dominion over the beast, Adam ceded control of the earth that God gave him. He, he ceded control over to Satan. And so when we get to the temptation of Jesus, the devil says, hey, I can give you all the kingdoms of the world. Just bow to me. And Jesus says, no, thank you. I'm going to take them a different way. And it's a way that you're not going to like very much, but it's going to be by ruining your kingdom. I'm not going to submit to you. But why could the devil offer the kingdoms of the world if he didn't have them? But now, after the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Christ, now that his wrath has been poured out on the harlot and the beast, the death grip that Satan once had on the nations is shattered. Why do civilized nations no longer have temples to gods carved out of iron or marble or wood um, or, or, or stone? Why, why is it that the world is no longer populated by nymphs and fairies and trolls and ghosts? Uh, I realize that there are still dark corners of the world where the gospel has not yet fully penetrated, but wherever the gospel has gone, the old gods and the old superstitions and the old myths have vanished. Now, there's plenty of deception. There's plenty of wicked activity in the world, but it's not like it was before the resurrection. 
the world has changed, and I don't believe we can fully comprehend what the world was like before Jesus, the darkness of paganism that reigned. It's, it's evident that the world is a different place now after the resurrection of Jesus because Satan's stranglehold on the nations has been broken. He can no longer deceive them all at the same time in such a way that they can unify against the church. Now, having said that, The fact that Satan has been bound so that he cannot deceive the nations doesn't mean that all his activity has ceased. The demons have been disarmed. Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus has disarmed principalities and powers. Their activity is limited. And as the gospel goes out, their work is even more restricted. They're unable to prevent the gospel from advancing. They're unable to prevent the victory of Christ's kingdom, but they're still the source of mischief, and opposition, and temptation, and deception. These bonds by which Satan is bound so that he can't deceive the nations, these bonds remain in place until some point in the far future when Satan is loosed for a little while so that he can once again deceive the nations. The fact that we have a falling away of nations implies that they once submitted to Christ. They once named the name of Jesus. And and then we're going to read about a great final battle where the last decisive blow is dealt to Satan. We'll keep reading and we'll study this further in coming weeks. But for now, let's just think for a moment on how Satan is restrained for just a minute to think on this. And think back to the keys and think back to the chains and what Jesus said about keys and and binding in his earthly ministry. The authority that Christ exercises in binding Satan, the authority that, that Christ exercises in closing up the pit is exercised through the church. Well, that's because it's in the church that the work of Satan is first evident. That's where Satan operates. Where does Satan hang out? The very first time that we see him is in Eden, not not just anywhere in the world. Uh, uh, Adam didn't meet Satan out, you know, in, in the woods one day. Satan came to the center of the garden sanctuary where the sacramental trees stood. And he's there on the Lord's day, on the Sabbath, on the day when God comes to meet with Adam and Eve. That's the first time that we see the serpent in the sanctuary, at the sacraments, on the Lord's day. That's that's where we see him. And when Jesus later comes in the Gospels, where does Jesus find demons? He finds them in the synagogues. Satan is always attacking the bride. He's there to devour and corrupt her offspring. He doesn't need to hang out at dive bars and crack houses and abortion mills. They're already on his program. He, he doesn't have any work to do there. That's not, <laughs> I got that. Where does he come? He attacks the sanctuary. He comes right into the center. And if you don't deal with him at the center in the garden on the first day, you can't deal with him anywhere else. When we look at all the atrocities and the rampant wickedness here and around the world, we're tempted to believe that all of these things are the chief problems with the world, but those are not the main problems. Those are the effects. Those things arise because certain more fundamental things are not in order. Satan is loose in society because Satan is loose in the church. If we fight him and bind him in the church, he can't even get to society. It's in the church that the doorway 
exists, it's, it's the church is a doorway that he has to go through. We can seal off the mouth of the bottomless pit right here. We have the keys and we have the chains. If Satan is at loose in the society, with abortion or perversion or homosexuality or transsexualism and everything else, if he's loose out there, it's because we have left the pit open and we have to shut the pit. And we can do it because his access to the world is through the church. He has to go through the garden to get to the world. The keys and chains that Jesus holds in Revelation 20 reflect the church's authority. Well, where, where am I getting this? Where do I find this? Well, if you join me over in Matthew chapter 16, you will see this too, I promise you. Uh, chapter 16, Jesus is talking to Peter. In Matthew 16, verse 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Now, Jesus praises Peter for listening to the Father, for not listening to flesh and blood. You get revelation from heaven, Peter, and as long as you continue listening to the Father, and as long as you're faithful in that, you can continue to rule on earth. And what does that rule look like? Verse 18, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, the mouth of the pit, the entrance of of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. If you have a New King James, you see that other translation in the footnotes. And I think the ESV may put that in the past tense. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Jesus says to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom and the gates of Hades, the mouth of the pit is not going to have any defenses against you. You can just lock it up whenever you're ready. When you listen to the voice of the father, you can bind Satan. And just a few verses later, we get, we get a message from the pit. We get a message from the gates of Hades. From that time, verse 21, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus hears the voice of Satan right in his local community, right in his closest friend group. And and Jesus shuts him down because Peter is no longer listening to the voice of the father. I'm sorry, Peter is getting his information from flesh and blood and Jesus shuts him down. You're talking like Satan now, and now you need to be bound. You need to be shut up. Um, this comes up again in Matthew 18. Um, this is in the context of church discipline. Matthew 18, 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's not saying whatever you do, God is going to validate it. 
Whatever you bind on earth, he says, has already been bound in heaven, shall have been bound in heaven. You, church, are working out on earth what has already been decided in heaven. And this, of course, is all in the context here in Matthew 18 of church discipline. He says, again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. This two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. That's not talking about God's blessing on home Bible studies, though he does bless home Bible studies, but that's not what he's talking about here. Jesus is talking about his presence, his authority, his blessing in the church court. This is talking about the work of Christ through the official acts of his church in admitting and dismissing people to the bride. Why is all of this language of keys and chains and binding and loosing, this is wrapped up in the work of the church. It's all worked up in and combined with the authority and the actions and the purity of the church. Where else do we see this? How does Jesus begin the book of Revelation? What is his message to the seven churches? What does he say? Well, let's summarize it. I have this against you, that you tolerate the doctrine of the Balaamites. So you need to kick them out. You're, you're, you're tolerating Jezebel. You need to kick her out. You're putting up with the Nicolaitans. You need to kick them out. The big problem with you people is you're not kicking enough people out. That's Jesus's message to the church. You aren't being faithful if you haven't kicked these people out. And so it's, it's kind of a fact that if a church doesn't have somebody somewhere that's really mad at them, they probably aren't being faithful. They're probably not doing their job unless you have somebody really upset with you somewhere. Nobody's ever upset at a Methodist church because they never kick anybody out. And nobody's ever upset with the Roman Catholic church because they won't even excommunicate uh, Joe Biden or anybody like him. To be clear, this ex we're not trying to, when we talk about church discipline, again, we're not talking about being really heavy-handed toward anybody who disagrees with us. We want the door to the church to be as big as the door to heaven. We want the door to the Lord's table to be as wide as the door to heaven. We don't keep out people who disagree with us theologically on every fine point, unless it's some extreme denial of the Trinity or, or the Apostles' Creed. But church discipline is exercised against those who corrupt the morality and the order of the church. And the point here in Jesus telling the apostles that I give you the keys, I give you the chains to bind and loose, the point is that discipline and order for society begins in the church. The binding of Satan begins in the church. If we can't deal with obvious sins in the church... God won't give us the responsibility to deal with anything bigger. This is where rule begins. This is where dominion begins. This is where Satan and his works are beaten back. This is where Satan is chained and we lock the pit. This is where wickedness is opposed. This is the front line of the battle. Now, it's not just us. It's not just our congregation or our presbytery, or our denomination. The whole church has to stand together. And right now, the church is pulling in a hundred different directions. It's not just individual church discipline that's under review, but churches working together, respecting each other's authority and pruning out the apostate branches of the church, which means that we have a lot of work to do. 
I'm not even sure if we had another 1,000 literal years, that would be enough time to do all the work that we have to do. The kingdom grows slowly and gradually, like a mustard seed grows into a tree, like the leaven of the gospel works out its way into all societies and cultures, which means that you and I are called in our day with our sphere of influence, with all of our opportunities to be faithful in our time, in our context. It's not complicated We bind Satan through the faithful preaching of the word, through the right use of the sacraments, through consistent discipline, which begins with self-discipline. It begins with self-governance. This is how Satan is bound, through the work and the authority of the church. So be encouraged. You didn't know this when you got up this morning. You probably didn't think about this, but you're binding Satan today. You're beating him down. You are locking him up. You are shutting his mouth. You are closing up the mouth of the pit with every psalm and hymn and amen and creed. You are binding him. He has no defenses when the church is assembled. This is where he shows up. And so this is where we fight and he has no defenses. Don't, don't let up. Resist temptation. Tell Satan, no. Tell your flesh, no. Tell your heart, no. Tell God and his law, Yes, boldly live out God's lawful order. order. Press the crown rights of King Jesus into every corner of your life, every sphere of influence that you have. And here's an idea. Wherever you have influence, wherever you have opportunity, go pick up an ax and chop down a sacred tree. Who's going to stop you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your work in and through your bride. We thank you for the work of your son in in, uh, binding and beating back the works of Satan. Please, as you have promised, crush him under our feet. May we see advance and victory of your kingdom in our day, in our time. Please grant us this blessing. Give us uh, this, this, this shining, uh, uh, this, this glimmer of, of hope in the redemption that, that you have promised in, in our time. And we trust in you, Father. We don't, we don't stop. We, we continue to trust. And we ask you to bless our labors in your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.